Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Fit Body Happy Joints. My name is Shannon. So this is our Thanksgiving episode. And for the last two years, I've been releasing an episode on Thanksgiving that's centered around not using exercise as a tool to burn off what you eat or to earn your food. And I really just love doing this because each year I kind of put a different spin on it. And this year will be no exception, putting a little bit of a different spin, but still kind of keeping some of the same themes that I talk about each year and reiterating some of the science, but then just adding a little bit more, some different details. And before I get into this episode, I have to tell you all, my producer, Logan, would kill me if he knew that I was recording this episode right now. Um, I am currently in a makeshift tent I've got two chairs in front of me and a blanket on top so that my audio sounds better. Um, but I just wanted to go ahead and give the disclaimer that Logan, I'm sorry, he did not produce this podcast. This is me on GarageBand, like I used to, like I used to record and edit all my podcasts. Um, but I'm doing my best to make sure the audio sounds good. So all for the podcast, all for you all. So anyways, so. Let's start by talking about the science as to why it actually isn't possible to earn your food or to burn off your food, at least not in its entirety. So I used to be the person that felt like I needed to earn every single calorie I ate or punish myself if I overindulged. And a lot of you know my story, but maybe some of you don't. I was in a cycle of overeating on the weekends and over drinking and spending the following week trying to burn it all off and eating as little as possible just to get back to the weekend and be starving and eat all the food again and drink alcohol a lot and repeat the cycle the following week. And this is kind of what happened for a few years in my early to mid twenties. And this behavior resulted in chronic pain throughout my whole body. And this was due to my exercise routine. My exercise routine was too aggressive. It was every day. I felt guilty if I took a day off. So I wasn't prioritizing recovery. And this combined with under eating and in general, just not fueling properly resulted in chronic pain. Um, to the point where I couldn't like stand more than like 15 minutes without having to take a break. And this was at the age of 24. So not only was I experiencing chronic pain, but I started developing night terrors where I would like wake up in the middle of the night, screaming, afraid, (laughs) seeing things. And quite honestly, it was disruptive and it was terrifying. So I think my lifestyle habits of over-exercising, under-eating, and then binge-eating and trying to punish myself in my workouts and not recovering, I think this lifestyle was really a product of me listening and being in the fitness industry and being a fitness instructor and kind of being in this culture of no pain, no gain, hustle culture and feeling like I had to quote unquote work hard. I had to be in a sweaty heap or else I wasn't going to see results. And from the outside at that point, I looked lean and I looked thin, but I was truly, I can say this now looking back, the most unhealthy I've ever been in so many ways, mentally, physically, all the things. And the irony is that once I started training smarter and fueling properly and prioritizing recovery, my body composition improved more 
and I didn't have all the negative side effects of the joint pain and the night terrors and the moodiness and the anxiety and all of those things that were coming along with a lifestyle of using exercise to punish myself. And one of the reasons I have this podcast and Evlo and my social media is because I've been there and now I'm on the other side of it. And I just want to scream from the rooftops that there's another way that we don't have to be kind of victims of the of fitness culture and wreck our bodies in the pursuit of looking lean and small and thin and all those things. So I'm passionate about using the science to help those who are struggling like I was. Maybe you're struggling in a different way with fitness stuff. I think we all kind of have our own struggles with fitness and our bodies and all of those things, but I hope to use science to help you develop habits that can lead to a strong, fit, healthy body without sacrificing one area of your health, like your mental health, your joint health, your social life, all of those things that are so important. And it's so funny because now that I'm pregnant, I'm, I have an even more and even greater appreciation of taking, of how I took care of myself over the last, you know, four years. Um, because I think that if I would have continued those lifestyle habits of grinding my body into the ground and under eating, I'm pretty confident that I probably would have struggled with fertility. And if I hadn't taken care of myself over the last four years, I wonder, you know, I'll never know, but I wonder if I would have struggled with that. So I have a really good appreciation for taking care of myself and my, I'm thankful for my past self of going through that point where, you know, I, I had to kind of hit a rock bottom physically with my body in order to turn things around. So with that context, I want to get into this, the science of this, because I think understanding that like I've been there and I know how hard it is to reframe some of this stuff um, is, is helpful maybe for some of you listeners. So let's get into the science of why it's not actually possible to burn off what you eat. Studies show that there is a difference of about a thousand calories between feeling satisfied and feeling full. And there's about two to 3,000 calories of a difference between feeling full and feeling stuffed. So there's a big difference, right? And I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty or make you feel like you shouldn't indulge on Thanksgiving, but just kind of laying out the numbers so that you know that, okay, I'm not going to try to go burn this off. Many people will want to go for a long run or like do a sweaty boot camp class the next day to try to punish themselves or try to burn off what they ate. And the problem is to burn off that amount of calories, let's say you ate 2000 extra calories. To burn off that amount of calories, you, a female would have to run like 45 miles, which would take more than five hours. So not only does your workout not really put much of a dent in those calories because exercise doesn't burn as many calories as we've been led to believe, but as I've talked about many times, even if you do burn more calories in your workout, the constrained total energy expenditure theory states that your body will essentially subtract those calories you burn in your workout from other calorie expending processes like digestion, cell cleanup, brain power, etc. So in other words, you don't actually increase your overall deficit. You just reallocate how you burn calories. So you don't necessarily increase the amount of calories that you're burning overall if you're adding more exercise. So the study, which I reference a lot, this was a large study, I'll put it in the show notes, shows that you don't really burn more than about 800 active calories on average per day. So once you reach that about 800 active calories, 
your body tends to borrow from other calorie expending processes to keep you within a a narrow window of calorie expenditure. So let's say your resting metabolic rate, um, how many calories your body burns just to keep you alive. Like if you were in a coma, this is the amount of calories your body would burn. Let's say that is like 1,200. Let's say that's 1,200 calories, your RMR, your resting metabolic rate. So if you were to get to your max-ish amount of calories, you know, add 800 to that 1,200. So you're at about 2,000 calories per day. So burning maybe more than 2,000 calories per day might not be increasing your deficit overall, if that makes any sense. And I hope that those of you, this isn't the first time you're exposed to this, but just reiterating that it's not about how many calories you burn because your body is going to reallocate and subtract in other ways. And active calories, by the way, that 800 calories, that's not just exercise. Active calories aren't just formal exercise. It's all of the energy that your body is using towards any type of movement. So typing, walking, talking, going up and down the stairs, household chores, showering. People think that the majority of your activity energy is used towards exercise, when in reality, most of your active energy, most of your active calories are being used to power your non-exercise related activities. This is called NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So talking with your hands, fidgeting, all of those things really do add up in a lot bigger way than formal exercise. 800 active calories might sound like it's a lot, but when it's spread throughout your whole day, it's super achievable. For me, 800 active calories, according to my aura ring, which may or may not be super accurate, but this is all we have to go off of. So we're, we're just going to go off of it for the sake of example. But for me, burning about 800 active calories in a day looks like a 35 minute Evlo class. So one of our, um, one of our Evlo resistance training classes, a 20 minute walk, and then just the addition of my daily movements. So walking, talking, fidgeting, household chores, all of that accounts for about 800 active calories for me for a day. Everybody's going to look a little different, right? So there's no like perfect math to this. And it's not about getting to that 800 calories precisely. The last thing I want you to do is obsess about getting to that 800 calories. It's more just to reiterate that if you're trying to burn a ton of calories in your workouts, it's probably not actually adding to your overall deficit. So you might be overworking and wearing down your body for not a huge payoff. And what's really interesting is on Thanksgiving, I think a lot of people kind of diminish how active they are if you're hosting or if you're socializing. If you're, let's say you're hosting Thanksgiving or you're hosting a gathering and you're cooking and you're cleaning and you're moving around and you're socializing and you're entertaining, you're likely getting close to that 800 active calories without even adding formal exercise. I think you'd be really surprised. And like I said, everyone's different. I'm also not saying don't exercise on Thanksgiving or that hosting a party is a substitute for formal exercise. I'm not saying that, but just trying to punish yourself the next day in your workout likely isn't putting much of a dent in your overall calorie expenditure and maybe wearing down your body for no payoff. I'm also not saying don't exercise the day after Thanksgiving. Just Don't add extra exercise thinking that it's punishment for your food. Just do the normal workout that's on your schedule. That's what I would recommend. I recognize that rewiring your relationship to exercise and food is not easy. 
And my hope is to give you the science and give you the repetition so that you can start to do it. Because like I said, it's so freeing. You will feel the freedom that you will feel in being able to separate food from exercise is truly incredible. Again, as someone on the other side of this, I can truly say that I no longer feel guilty for not doing a formal workout on a Saturday or a Sunday or on holidays and giving myself breaks and rest. It has been so much more mentally freeing for me. And I feel like I have a different relationship with exercise and a different relationship with food. And I now exercise and lift because of how it benefits my muscle strength and size and how it benefits my overall health rather than choosing a workout because I know it's going to burn as many calories as possible and ultimately feeling awful because it just breaks down my body. So that's burning calories and why I really think we as an industry need to rethink this whole, like, let's go work off our Thanksgiving meal trend and thing. And I hope that that all made sense to you. And I hope that that helps, you know, plant a little seed in your brain that enjoy the meal, enjoy the Thanksgiving meal, but don't feel like you need to go earn it or that you need to go punish yourself the next day. And honestly, according to science, it doesn't really work anyway. So we might as well just enjoy it and take it for what it is. So I want to change gears now and talk about how to feel better. Let's say you're, you're going to indulge in a large meal which I plan to do on Thanksgiving and I enjoy it. And I don't think it's ever going to be something that I give up. I just something that I want to give up. How can you feel better after that like large carb rich meal? And you can actually use movement to do this. So I want to talk about this a bit. After a large meal, you may feel awful. I know this happens to a lot of people and it's, you know, the severity depends on who you are. I know I've really kind of come to dislike that feeling of like grogginess and sluggishness and maybe even a little irritability. And if you're at a social gathering, or even if you're not, that can be a huge bummer and make you just kind of want to go home and make you disconnect from those around you because you're like uncomfortable and tired and foggy. And it might kind of get in the way of you, of the whole point of connecting with family and friends on Thanksgiving. But at the same time, you know, I love a large Thanksgiving meal. And like I said, it's not something that I'm willing to give up. So why does this happen? Why do you get this kind of like groggy, sluggish, like feeling? And what can you do to lessen these symptoms so that you feel better? So this happens because of a large surge in what's called postprenatal glucose levels, the blood sugar levels that increase following a meal. So let's break this down. Following a meal, your digestive system breaks down the food that you ate into glucose. This glucose or sugar travels throughout your bloodstream to different cells to help power those cells and give those cells energy. Glucose is what your cells use to do their respective tasks. To let in glucose into those cells, the cells need insulin. Insulin is kind of the gatekeeper. So as blood glucose rises, from digesting your food, the digestive system sends the glucose into your bloodstream so that your cells can use the new, this new energy, but your cells need insulin to let that in. So insulin rises as blood sh- glucose rises, as blood sugar rises. Initially, after a carb-heavy meal, you may feel like a spike in energy because of all that available glucose in the blood. Your cells are all of a sudden flooded with lots of energy that they can use. And this is otherwise known as a sugar high. 
And it doesn't necessarily just happen from sugar. It can happen from like carbs, like breads and things like that. When you eat a, a meal that has more carbs in it than you need, there's an excess of blood glucose in your, in, in your bloodstream. This continues to elevate insulin in an attempt to push the blood glucose out of the bloodstream and into the cells. Eventually, this leads to a rapid drop in blood glucose and thus that crash that you feel, that like lethargy, fogginess, fatigue, sluggishness, maybe even irritability. And people, some people will crash harder than others. Some people won't experience a crash at all. And it kind of all depends on their insulin sensitivity. If you have better insulin sensitivity, you might experience less of a crash than if you are more or less insulin resistant, then you might experience more of a crash. And this is where, you know, we kind of have to trust our body a little bit. Hopefully you've been listening to this podcast and you've been applying the principles that we talk about from a fitness and nutrition standpoint, and you're starting to build muscle and your insulin sensitivity is hopefully improving. And if you haven't started applying this stuff, or if you're new and you're like, I just started applying it, that's okay. Hopefully this is motivation to continue to increase muscle mass over the next year or so, so that when you come back to this Next year when I'm doing the Thanksgiving podcast, you're a little bit more insulin sensitive and this could be like a little goal setting for yourself. I can tell you that I see a huge difference in my quote unquote crash now than when I had less muscle. In fact, we just had a Friendsgiving last weekend where I had like a huge plate of food and I had like three desserts and all the things and it was delicious and I felt completely fine. I had zero crash like I had, like I've had in years past. I felt energetic and present and connected to the people around me. And that was kind of like a fun moment to experience. But I will say that, you know, it's taken me years of building muscle and working on my overall health. And to see this pay off in the sense of like, oh, wow, I'm not seeing these crashes like I used to when I had a big meal is kind of fun. So it does take time. It's not like an overnight thing, but it is kind of fun to see and notice about yourself as you start to take care of yourself over and over consistently. So understanding what is happening in your body when you have a big meal is important because I think it can help you make decisions consciously, both about food and exercise, and really start to work with your body instead of against your body knowing that you can't really burn off a meal, but how can you potentially use movement to feel better and potentially kind of reduce all of those symptoms that you might feel after a big meal, or maybe like you notice you have like lots of cravings after a big meal. How how can you use movement to help avoid the severity of these symptoms? So this obviously isn't going to completely avoid the issue of a large glucose spike that comes inevitably after a large meal, but adding in movement post-meal has been shown to stabilize blood sugar levels and blunt a large blood sugar spike, reducing some of those negative side effects. Before I go any further, it is okay if you don't decide to apply this advice on Thanksgiving. I personally will be at a friend's house for Thanksgiving. I know we're going to be playing games and socializing. I'm not going to stop what I'm doing and make everyone go for a walk 30 minutes after my first bite. So if you don't apply this, full permission, it is okay. I just don't think it's going to be realistic for me. But if it is for you, then I want you to apply this and feel good. If I were in Kansas with my parents for Thanksgiving, which I'm just not this year because we're doing too much traveling otherwise, we'd probably you know, put on our coats after our Thanksgiving meal and go for a little stroll around the block. But it's just not going to happen this year. And I know that and that's okay. 
So the reason that movement can help avoid large glucose spikes and thus that crash that you feel after and maybe cravings the following day is because when you contract and move your muscles, those muscles now require glucose. So the glucose can be used by your body via movement, which may reduce the severity of the glucose of the blood sugar spike. How and when you move matters. So let's go through an easy protocol that you can apply um, after you eat a large meal. So first, how should you move? Light to moderate intensity activity following a meal has been shown to be the most effective for blunting that blood sugar spike. High intensity activity following a meal might be counterproductive because it might spike glucose again. So a walk is truly all you need, keeping it simple. When should you take your walk? Timing matters with movement post-meal because your body needs time to first digest the food, convert it into glucose, and then that glucose needs to hit your bloodstream. So you want to start your movement or your walk as glucose is kind of entering the bloodstream about 30 to 45 minutes after your first bite of food and up to about 60 minutes after your first bite. Glucose tends to spike around 60 minutes. So if you can start your movement before that 60 minute mark, that that tends to be the best for blunting that blood sugar spike. But of course, any movement is going to be good. So again, not something to obsess about, just kind of giving you what the studies are saying. How long should you walk? I think length of time, any length of time is going to be beneficial. So just do what you can. But this study that I'll link in the show notes concluded that 30 minutes or so of light to moderate intensity exercise, so a walk, is effective for lowering blood sugar. So going for a walk about 30 to 45 minutes after your first bite of food and walking for about 30 minutes, give or take, or honestly any kind of movement, even cleaning your house, can be helpful for managing a glucose spike post-meal. Again, I think it's totally okay if you decide to ignore this advice during Thanksgiving. Not everything has to be about optimizing your health at all time. My takeaway for you today is that it's okay to overeat and indulge on Thanksgiving. You can't really burn off what you eat, and there's absolutely no reason, from a, even from a scientific standpoint, to punish yourself if you consciously decide to eat a large meal on Thanksgiving and enjoy your family and friends. If it works for you and you want to add in a walk post-meal to kind of reduce some of those symptoms that come along with eating a large carb-heavy meal that may make you feel less tired and less groggy. So that can be a tool that you can add in to help you manage a blood sugar spike following a meal. Okay, that is it. Happy Thanksgiving to all. We will see you all next week, same time, same place. Bye for now.